Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is just a bit different. We're going to talk about loss. And so if you're feeling particularly vulnerable right now or you're in a real tense time, I just want to give you a heads up. You might want to wait for this episode till things are quieter, till you can put the kids to bed if you have kids, or just spend some time by yourself to really consider and contemplate. And if it feels too overwhelming, just hit pause and you can always pick it back up later. a unique time in a world, a, a time where so many of us have so much in common because of our loss. I want to talk about naming loss, which is to say I want to talk about grieving and lament. So I'm going to read a chapter of a book I wrote, and the book is called Death, Hope, and the Laughter of God. And the chapter is entitled The Key of Lament. Thoughts around lament are maybe the most important thoughts that I have. Ironically, they always wind up being the least popular, and maybe that's just the way it's supposed to be. Maybe those things go hand in hand. But we're all dealing with loss at some level. It's wild to be dealing with it in the places and the spaces that so many of us live, or maybe I should just speak for myself, the places and the spaces in which I live, which are typically upwardly mobile, affluent, positive American places and spaces. Basically spaces that have bought into the cultural story of exceptionalism. When exceptionalism becomes your God, disillusionment can be very bitter. But this coronavirus quarantine time may be a time to admit our disillusionment. It's not a time to be positive per se. I mean, be thankful for sure. But be careful how you frame it. Being positive isn't the same thing as being Christian. And sometimes, in fact, often it is the very opposite. It's healthy and good to actually say, wait, what if this is the end? What if I have lost everything? The goal is to lean into that loss, to feel the weight of the despair of all of that, to recognize that the things I had put hope in in the past really were not things worthy of my hope. The goal isn't to find the silver lining, to look for reasons to be joyful necessarily. It's like what Kate Bowler talked about in the story in the New York Times recently when a journalist asked her about being positive and about being joyful. Among other things, she said, and the best is yet to come, but the problem is thinking only in that way becomes a kind of poison in which it expects that people who are suffering, which is pretty much everyone right now, are somehow not to speak realistically about their circumstances. The main problem is that it adds shame to suffering by just requiring everyone to be prescriptively joyful. She goes on to say, If I see one more millionaire on Instagram yell that she is choosing joy while selling journals in which stay-at-home moms are supposed to write joy mantras, I'm going to lose my mind. She also says, For me, part of the joy of prayer is having abandoned the formula. I have no expectation that prayer works in a direct way, but I do hope that every person, religious or not, feels the permission to say, I am at the edge of what I know here, and in the face of the sea of abyss, someone out there, please show me love. <laughs> I should be reading chapters of books from Kate Bowler, but it's just my chapter here. Hey, Kate Bowler probably has her own podcast. She can read her own stuff. 
Well, at any rate, I hope all of this helps you with your thinking. And I do hope the best for you. The problem is me hoping the best for you, is me hoping that you think about the worst for you. I believe God cares. I know it to be true. But over two years removed from my daughter's death, and I'm still restless. I still search in my restlessness, not because I'm unconvinced or need proof of his love. I search because my feeble brain cannot quite grasp the meaning. Like standing in ocean waves clutching fistfuls of sand, no matter how tightly I clench my fists around the truth, after a few waves it still escapes. The reality of God's love juxtaposed with the pain of my loss is a mystery, the depths of which I'll never fully understand. But it's not for lack of searching. I'm aware all this searching is releasing a type of energy in and around me. It's like steam blasting off the collision of lava and water. I'm like the tail end of some remote island in the Pacific. The truth of God's love and massive ocean waves crash down into the pain of my searing lava. Steam is being released everywhere. This steam, it seems, is converted into a kind of energy that winds up being the source of all my questions. It seeps into my thought life, my subconscious, and my dreams. It drives me forward and at other times blocks the path. It colors all my relationships, some for good, others for bad. It influences everything about me, even the physicality of who I am. I recognize that most days when I leave for the trail or the gym, I'm fueled by its energy. It both lurks behind and props up every sentence I form. The paradox of bitterness and sweetness, of death and hope, billow up into endless thoughts and questions about my relationship with God and how I'm meant to interact with Him. I know He's always available. I've always believed this, but never before have I entered into His presence so broken and disoriented. What does it mean to pray to a loving God when one is in the midst of so much pain? What happens when the cloak of fragrance mingles with the aroma of God? If God is life and resurrection, is he offended when I approach him, reeking of such death and decay? How do I pray? I do not have all the answers, but I'm learning of an important and artful way of approaching God referred to as lament. I have not in the past engaged with the concept much, but these recent years of searching, struggling, and grieving have led me to its doorstep. I'm encouraged and impressed with how the very fabric of the Hebrew story is woven through and through with lament. The psalmists lamented. The prophets lamented. And it is, of course, the subject of the entire book of Lamentations. When the Hebrews canonized such pain and questioning, it was a sacred gift to me and the rest of the world. Lament is a unique and specialized way of approaching God. That it is unique and specialized should not imply it is unavailable to all people. It surely is. God's grace is for everyone. All are welcome to his table. Rather, what I think it means is that while lament is available and present to all people, all people are not available and present to lament. There are reasons why this is true. But foremost is lament's demand for honesty and courage at the most subterranean levels of our soul. 
Honesty is needed to admit the pain of injustice, and courage is needed to keep the injustice present before God. As a side note, I've noticed that the male gender in particular does not lament. Maybe other cultures do it better, but in the West, men have been conditioned to cover up the pain lest it be a sign of weakness. But that's the point. Yes, it is a sign of weakness. The humility of God in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus showed a strength and weakness, not strength and power. Our lives often lack authority because our lives often lack weakness. We trick ourselves again and again to live in denial of our loss. We assure ourselves that we can be satisfied without acknowledging grief's gaping presence. We, in other words, fabricate meaning. But if we do not lament, then we do not know our need. And if we do not know our need, then we'll not be thirsty for grace. Lament, counterintuitively, leads us to grace. The loss of life, a dream, a marriage, the loss of innocence, or a hope of the way you thought it was going to be is the beginning of life. Because of the following reasons, I'm beginning to think lament may be our highest calling. First, as previously touched upon, lament takes honesty. When a life is raped by circumstances, lament will be honest. Furthermore, it will be honest about the ensuing unwanted, unplanned pregnancy of doubt and shame. Yes, that thing birthed out of tragedy can be something of which we're thankful for later, but first and all along the way, lament demands the truth. Lament doesn't resolve tension. It honestly allows the thing to be. Lament is not the friend who stops by after your tragedy and before you can get the door open says, I'm glad you have so much faith. Wouldn't this be terrible if this had happened to someone without faith? Lament doesn't encourage you to rush through your situation. Lament doesn't attempt to redeem anything on its own. It's not the friend who says, God must have big plans for you. Lament is the friend who enters your home and quietly sits with you as you weep or quietly sits with you as you curse. Lament is the friend who doesn't protect God's feelings or his reputation. Lament knows God is big enough to hear our pain. Secondly, in its honesty, lament begins to name the pain. Naming powerfully organizes thoughts and redirects perspectives. It doesn't allow pain to lay around our souls in murky anonymity, rearing its ugly head whenever it desires. Lament calls pain up and says, I know who you are, I know what you've done, and it's not right. For example, I know of a divorced woman who, when faced with panic attacks over the shame of a broken marriage, borrows the advice of Elizabeth Gilbert in her book Big Magic and talks directly to her shame and fear. She says things like, Shame. Thank you for being with me all throughout my life. Thank you for all those times when you kept me from embarrassing myself by doing something stupid. You served your purpose, but you know what? You're not in charge right now. You're welcome to hang out here in my soul, you cute little thing, you. But you're just not in charge. My friend then wisely ends her little self-talk with some scripture meditation on a verse like 1 John 4.18, reminding herself that perfect love casts out all fear. I love this approach. I respect this approach. I see honest lament written all over it. Rather than shaming herself about shame, my friend is learning to acknowledge the presence of her shame without allowing it to overwhelm her. In this way, she is separating, assigning limits, naming in her life. This naming is a way we steward our life as it winds through mountains of expectation and valleys of disappointment. What's more, the stewarding becomes a way of recreating our life. It's interesting to note that within the Genesis story of creation, God created by naming, 
and separating. He separated light and dark and named it day and night. He separated land and water and called it earth and ocean. The same pattern is repeated throughout the creation story. The design and forward movement that energized creation was not random or unintentional, although creation itself, stars exploding, volcanoes erupting, animals reproducing, islands forming, all have an element of randomness about them. The recreating of our lives is similar. Loss, seasons, death, hope, dreams, and ideas all come and go throughout life, exploding, forming, reproducing in painful and random ways. But through it all, we can learn to name, separate, and intentionally give direction to our life. Thirdly, lamenting keeps the focus off of us and onto God. Many, I'm afraid, assume grieving is little more than complaining or whining, a nuisance to be endured until time passes. But lament is more. Yes, it involves complaining, but it's done so in the context of a belief that there is someone who can do something about the complaints. It's complaining to someone trustworthy. Viewed in this light, we can see it as a form of healthy worship. Healthy worship is directed outward toward God. It's this idea that causes James Bruckner to say imaginatively, Lament coming honestly before God is biblical praise in a minor key. The importance of that line cannot be overstated for those who are mourning, grieving, losing, alone, and hurting. This means the importance of that line cannot be overstated for the entire church. For the church is the body of people who are mourning, grieving, losing, alone, and hurting. And John Foreman sings, We are a beautiful letdown, painfully uncool, the church of the dropouts, the losers, the sinners, the failures, and the fools. We, in our addiction to winning and denial of pain, have lost this perspective. We have taken our cues from the politicians rather than the prophets, from culture rather than Christ. We want to sing all of our songs in the major keys of winning, triumph, and victory, but our best songs start in the minor key of suffering. When we sing in this key, we're reminded of God's great descent into our humanness. He experienced loss. He died crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? He shows us what it means to be fully human. You might say living life to the fullest is singing in the key of lament. I've been contemplating a way to illustrate the sights and sounds of lament. Bruckner's minor key reference begins to open up my imagination. So let's talk more about music. The fundamental pitch of a song has to be set in some context. We call this context its key. When a song is performed, all the musicians must tune their instruments or voices to that particular song's key. Different musicians cannot perform a song in different keys at the same time, unless the performance calls for a cacophony of out-of-tune noise. A song's key is built from a series of notes on a scale, the most important of which is a trio of notes based on the first note of the scale, often called the root then the third, and finally the fifth. The simple reason this triad winds up being important is because of the way it sounds. When the three notes of the root triad are played or sung, the sound waves will vibrate in harmony. In short, this is pleasing to the ear. There's more. Whenever an individual sound vibration is activated, there are subtle extra sound vibrations activated as well. These extra vibrations ranging from barely audible to completely inaudible, are called harmonic overtones. While the ear is drawn to the fundamental note, these overtones always exist in the background, giving added color. 
For example, if you pluck a string on an acoustic guitar and then hold your ear up close to the opening, you'll hear harmonic overtones vibrating, moving in and out of each other. This oversimplified explanation of keys, notes, and harmonic overtones helps explain how musical compositions are created. The main triad, its fundamental notes, and all the inharmonic overtones will provide a construct for music to happen. When all of it's working together, simple phrases can emerge that then grow into more complex melodies. These melodies can be woven together into verses and choruses, which can be used to form songs. Songs themselves can grow into larger movements, and eventually, entire musical compositions can be created. All of this is built on a simple trio of notes in a particular key. It was St. Ignatius Loyola who first began to talk about the Trinity, that is, the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, operating as a musical triad, three notes, spaced apart, working together in harmony. With this as our background, maybe the Trinity is like a note song, the root of which is sometimes the extravagant love of the Father, sometimes the amazing grace of the Son, and sometimes the intimate truth of the Holy Spirit. Regardless of the root, the other voices sing out in harmony like sinking sound waves. In similar ways that a musical triad provides an opportunity for an entire musical composition to be created, so the holy triad provides a way for all of creation to happen. Imagine the vibrations flowing in and out of each other, providing a construct for simple cells, then plant and animal life, land, ocean, sky, and eventually entire galaxies to be created. In the background, giving color to all of this creation may be the sometimes barely audible and sometimes completely inaudible harmonic overtones. These are the deeper, richer, and subtler vibrations of God's melodies and harmonies ringing out through the universe that are so often beyond our ability to notice or even comprehend. This, of course, is all metaphorical. But if we imagine the Trinity consisting of three vibrating sound waves plus all the accompanying harmonic overtones, then we could also imagine the need for a fundamental pitch, a key in which the Trinity sings. How do we find this key? What is the key in which the Trinity creates art? I imagine we find it by considering the path of descent, the Trinity in the great dance of trust and relationship, descended into our dimension, willing to be broken. It's a sign. I am guessing that God composes in this key. But how can we know this to be true? How do we know God creates in the key of descent? What is descent's fundamental pitch? How does it arrive in tune? I'm imagining still, and I do not say this flippantly, but maybe the cross is the tuning fork for the Trinity. The cross, ringing out in cruciform love, provides God's fundamental pitch. It is that note emanating from Mount Calvary, like a hammer peeing on nails and short vibrating sound waves and then growing wider and lower. It crescendos, deeper, descending. The sound waves move further and further apart. There are massive waves sweeping and scanning the earth, the galaxy, and the universe. The vibration rocks both forward and backward in time. Even more, it resonates beyond time. Time stands still. Everything that ever was or ever will be stops to listen. Can you hear? With the holy triad, the key of descent, and its fundamental pitch of cruciform love as our backdrop, we turn back to the act of lament. The act of lamenting is the cry of God's person intersecting with and tuning up to the key of descent. The cry is piercing and haunting. To even listen in on lament is painful. 
the mournful vibrations are so out of tune with cruciform love that at first one wonders if the Trinity will ever be able to overcome the noise. Lamenting, in a sense, is the fight against the great descending of God. It is the cry of pain and reluctance and having the foolishness of one's hopes and dreams subjected to the foolishness of the cross. Lament is the honest clash of one singing horribly out of tune with God, but slowly, patiently, lovingly, the dissonance subsides as the one lamenting finally begins to tune up to the cruciform love of the cross. There is at some point a realization that the very reason the lamenter can sing this tune in the first place, the very reason he or she is aware of injustice, is because of cruciform love. So the lament cries out all the more sharply, but now less in pain and anger and more in agreement with the Holy Creator. The cries of other laments join in the chorus as well. Soon, God's people are singing as one with God. The vibrations grow deeper and deeper. It turns into a cavernous bell choir ringing out over the ages and the eons. It crescendos, and eventually the vibration will knock all of us down. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that the ringing of the cross is the sound of truth, the sound of hope, and the sound of love. Eventually, all creation, every mountain and molecule, every plant and animal will sing out in vibrant harmonies and harmonic overtones. When we're in tune, we authentically cry out with God over the injustice of poverty, over the unfairness of disease, over the inequality of racism. We grieve over the large geopolitical systemic abuses of power, but also we grieve in very personal ways, such as the purposelessness of an ice storm coming along at the exact moment a beautiful, young, 20-year-old college girl full of life, vision, art, and joy is driving life's highway. Lamenting sings out with all kinds of phrases, but none more prominently than the lyrics, God, I praise you, and, and, this is wrong. What is happening is dreadfully and terribly wrong. Please send your kingdom into this world and fix it. Even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Lament is the calling of God's people. We must lament all this death, for it paves the way for hope. Lamenting breaks our heart because we realize all this uppercase and lowercase death is breaking the heart of God. Lament is the practice of God himself. What is Jesus showing us about God's character by weeping over Jerusalem or the death of Lazarus? What is Jesus telling us about God's longing by describing God as a shepherd willing to go after one lost sheep or the father searching for his son? These are glimpses of a God who grieves, who searches, who longs himself. If God searches, why wouldn't we? If Jesus honestly cried out to God about his pain, why wouldn't we? Walter Brueggemann ends his book, Prophetic Imagination, this way. There is grief work to be done in the present that the future may come. There is mourning to be done for those who do not know the deathliness of their situation. There is mourning to be done with those who know pain and suffering and lack the power or freedom to bring it to speech. The saying is a harsh one for it sets this grief work as a precondition to joy. It announces that those who have not cared enough to grieve will not know joy. The mourning is a precondition in another way, too. It's not a formal external requirement, but, rather, the only door and route to joy. Seen in this context, Jesus' saying about weeping and laughing is not just a neat aphorism, but a summary of the entire theology of the cross. Only that kind of anguished disengagement permits fruitful yearning, and only the public embrace of deathliness permits newness to come. We're at the edge of knowing this in our personal lives, for we understand a bit of the process of grieving. 
but we have yet to learn and apply it to the reality of society. And finally, we have yet to learn it about God, who grieves in ways hidden from us and waits to rejoice until his promises are fully kept. Lament is ultimately all I know to do, and possibly it's all I should be doing. For as I cry out under the immense ocean waves of his love and the burning lava of my pain, as I forge my way through the steam of all the energy released, I realize something like new land is being created. That's what happens in the middle of all this activity. New land. Some may even say a promised land. It's being forged and formed deep within me. Yes, I lament. And something new is being formed. I'm heading to a promised land. Okay, thanks for having the strength to work through that episode with me. Hopefully it was helpful for you. Or you thought of someone who's been through some intense loss that you could share this with. Maybe it'll be helpful for them. And that is the point that we all walk in this together to find solidarity together, to help each other through the inevitable difficult times that are going to come. That's what it means to be human. What does Ram Dass say? Uh, we're all just walking each other home. I love that. That's a great way to end. Peace, everybody. Thank you.